0: This is Strange Assembly, Episode 203, Mythic Battles. I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there or on iTunes. I am here today with Jake Thornton, and we are going to talk about, shockingly, Mythic Battles Pantheons. Hey, Jake.
1: How you doing? How you doing, Chris?
0: I'm doing alright. So, I hear that every once in a while these days, somebody puts up a, a large collection of really pretty miniatures in a box on Kickstarter, and then people throw money at them.
1: Yeah, that's that's what I'm hearing too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: you're getting a lot of, and I say you. So you is Mythic Games and Monolith Games are, yeah. are co-producing, or I, maybe you can enlighten me if there's a more accurate way of describing that. But I'll say co-producing.
1: Co-producing sounds good to me. I think okay. that, that's that sounds that sounds all sort of movies and big business and, and <laughs> you know yeah that sounds really cool. Yes, go for yes. that. Yeah.
0: Yes, if you put up some money, you can be a co-executive
1: producer. It's a pledge level in everything. <laughs> yeah, it really should be, actually,
0: yeah. Hey, you know, yeah, you guys you guys just have the, the straight-up, normal old pledge level, but I'm sure we can talk about that. But
1: I'm sure you can add them during the campaign. I'm sure you can add extra ones. You can. Co-executive producer, absolutely. Yes, yes, there you go. How many million is that? I can't remember. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if
0: you'll be able to get millions, but they do that. Like people have Kickstarters, like be co-executive producer. We'll make a mini miniature based on you, ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And if there's one, do. if there's do. one person, if there's one person who's willing to do that,
1: well then. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, absolutely.
0: It must be nice to be the guy who has that kind of spare <laughs> cash. Me, I always, I, I mostly look at, okay, how much goodness do I get at the normal pledge level? I. Yeah. i'm just not usually in the shelling out hundred even hundreds of dollars much less tens of thousand for like getting to design a character that goes in a book or something i uh
1: <laughs> well yeah i i think when i buy stuff these days i i kind of think of it as um it's not so much how much it costs as how much how many hours of entertainment do i get for for my money so if I spend twenty bucks on something and I play it once and it's awful and I never use it again, that's not a very good deal. <laughs> if I spend a hundred bucks on something we play it every week for a year, I've got a really good value for money there. So it's not just about the kind of, you know, the dollar price tag when you and you buy it. It's about for me, it's about, you know, how many times am I going to put this on the table? How much replay value does it have? You know, how many different people do I know who I can play this with? Because sometimes you get something and you've got one person you know who you could ever play it with because nobody would else be interested in, in yodeling contests for cats or whatever it might be that you <laughs> happen to found a game about. But other things you've got, you might, you know, Greek, the Greek myth that we've based Mythic Battles on is something that everybody knows a bit about. Everybody's heard about the Trojan War, about Hercules, about Zeus and Apollo and all, you know, everybody's heard some of this. So it's kind of familiar for everybody. It's, everybody's got a little bit of knowledge about this which is nice because it means that you don't have to explain everything from the ground up. You're not doing your cat-yodeling games, which sounds not something that everybody's familiar with. Very popular in Switzerland, apparently.
0: <laughs> yes, I actually commented on one of our recent episodes. I have a tendency to uh, to look a little too much for quote-unquote deals, and so I'll you know end up buying some game for 10 or $20, and it'll sit on my shelf for a year and a half. And it'll get played, and I'll be like, "Oh, that's why that game was on clearance."
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've I've bought games for you know for cheap here and there, and and then you get them and you play them, and you think maybe I can use the components for something else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Is there so someone like, who
0: wants to buy this on eBay? They've, no, they've got nice
1: they've got nice meeples in this one. I'll I'll yeah anyway. So yeah, and I think as I said, that's why I kind of look at it as uh, not not just. When I'm buying things on Kickstarter or when I'm buying things in the stores, I I I think of it as how many hours of table time am I buying here? And so for some, I mean some some kind of classic little two player games, I've I've got enormous value for money out of because I've played them many times. Something like Knizia's Lost Cities, I've played hundreds of times, and that's not an expensive game, so that's really really good value. And I've also bought big box games. But I probably shouldn't name, but I've tried playing the first scenario and it was a bit broken and that was it. We never played again. So that was, uh, you know, looks pretty. <laughs> um, and that's about it. So that's, you know, that was a bad, bad choice. And then, like I said, it's, it's so, well, that's what I try and do these days. And I think when, when you're, when you're running a Kickstarter, you need to be thinking in a similar way because you've got to say, what, what are you, what are you offering people for, for whatever you're asking, whatever your price is? And uh, with, with Mythic Battles, I think we've got uh, one of the things that's, that I like about the design, which I didn't have anything to do with, by the way. I'm just saying, you know, I'm, my, my job really is a is a game designer. And both as a geek and as a professional designer, I, I'm very impressed with the, the design that Benoit has come together, with, come up with. And one of the things it does is it kind of builds in this concept of replayability. And there is a vast amount of replayability without just repeating yourself which which I think is is uh, very likely to give it a lot of table time and therefore you know makes it quite good value for money
0: okay so let's uh i mean hit some of the the basics of this for people who have not previously looked at the kickstarter right so
1: you've sure if I, if i was if i was any good at marketing i would have a plan and a spiel that i would do and it would be dead <laughs> slick <laughs> But I'm not, so I, I just kind of ramble around the topic until until something interesting happens. Um, sorry. So you were going to say you're, you're going to do it for me. You're going to you're going to have a plan here. Oh go no, Chris, wait, I'll, I, Chris, I don't have that much Chris.
0: of a of a <laughs> of a plan. I don't. I'm sadly not on retainer.
1: No, no, no. Run for the end zone. Go, Chris. Go,
0: Chris. Go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's a obviously it's a miniatures combat game. We've, we I think that's, that's your and it's got greek gods it's got greek heroes it's got you, you can have gods monsters heroes troops i think that there's one titan i'm going to ask you later if there are more titans I, there's got to be more titans coming but i think there's i've only seen one titans. so
1: far you've only seen one so far yeah
0: must be giants you're a god you get to build a squad with points you've got a bunch of different scenarios a campaign mode but at the core level what is what is the core mechanic of how the the game works
1: well, it, the game plays in several modes. As you say, there's two basic kind of flavors. You've got your, your a skirmish mode, and you've got your campaign mode, your story mode. And it's simplest to explain the skirmish mode, and then you can extrapolate for the story, because basically the campaign mode just takes the skirmish mode idea of the mechanics and tells a story with that mechanical system by setting it up differently each time to... to you know, and sometimes it defines particular deployments or particular groups of people on each side so um, maybe Hector and Achilles are having another fight or a competition to redo the 12 labors of Heracles but this time with different heroes or well, there's a number of things you could do but that's all ways of setting up in different variations and different ways of telling the story but the mechanics and the basic core idea are best explained with a, with a simple skirmish game which is you have a board you have an army of miniatures on each side, a very small army, a kind of war band. We call them armies, but they're, they're not terribly many pieces. And you're basically the, the Greek, world well, of Greek myth, to give you a little context, the world of Greek myth is has all happened. All of the kind of the myth, mythology that you've heard of, Achilles, Hector, Heracles, the gods, all of this is true, as is the history. So... Leonidas and the Spartans at Thermopylae, like you see in the movie 300. All of that happened. And then, there was this great cataclysm, and we kind of throw a huge spanner in the works and change the way history went, so that there is this massive cataclysm. The Olympus is destroyed, the Titans break free from their prison and cause chaos and carnage everywhere. And in the aftermath of this Titanomachy, which is the war again between the Titans and the gods, the gods have lost their immortality and are wandering around the shattered wasteland of Greece trying to find these things called Omphalos, which are sort of the coalesced power of dead gods, because some of the gods were killed in the destruction of Olympus. And by absorbing these Omphalos, then they can regain their power and regain their immortality. That's what the gods are trying to do. And Rather than just wander around on their own because they are no longer immortal and need a bit of, they don't particularly want to get killed. So they've recruited various people and heroes and so on to, to protect them and to fight with them. And part of the cataclysm was the gates of the underworld were opened and everybody and everything that was in the underworld escaped. So all of the monsters that have been killed in the past, so the Hydra, the Gorgon, the Medusa, all of these monsters who had been killed are now back wandering around Greece. And all of the heroes who, sl- who killed them the first time round are also back wandering around Greece. So Heracles is alive again, as is Achilles, as is Hector, as is Odysseus, as is Jason. All of the famous characters are all alive at the same time with all the monsters. And so your your warband, you, your army that you pick with the gods is taken from a mixture of all of these different classical, heroic, Monstrous things. So that's the background. And, and you, you basically fight out whether it's two, three or four player, you fight your God and their warband against the other people's gods and their warband and see who can either kill the other God first or absorb more than half of the Omphalos that starts on the, on the board, more than half of this energy that, that is on the table. And that's the kind of the overall thing. It's a, it's a board game with armies of rather beautiful figures fighting over who's going to get to be the new king of the new pantheon? Because as soon as someone gets enough to be enough power to become immortal once again, they will be so much more powerful than everyone else that they can effectively invent their own pantheon. So you can imagine the difference in this new pantheon between the one where Ares, God of war gets to be in charge and the one where an Aphrodite goddess of love gets to be in charge. <laughs> you get quite a different kind of vibe going on there. <laughs> um,
0: it's interesting. I have to say, like, see now as you're talking, I'm like, wait a minute, Gorgon. I have, I, have we seen the Gorgon yet? I don't know. Is that, is that technically a spoiler information about a future stretch goal or Aphrodite? Who knows? Hmm.
1: Who knows? I <laughs> am um, <I'm> just rambling. <laughs> yes. So, but that's the kind of overall shape of the game, and. The way in which it works, I think, has been has been rather cleverly organized. So one of the things that's very, very clever is that in most games, there's some point you always try and have a come, come up with a plan. You always try and influence the plan as, as best you can with whatever resources you have. That's how you play games. In most games, there is some point in the game when you are just along for the ride, you, you take the randomness as it comes and you just have to deal with that. Whether it's a random card draw or you roll the dice and you get what you get, there's some point when that's just out of your hands. And what I think is really particularly clever in, in, uh, Mythic Battles Pantheon is that there isn't a point when that happens. When you, you have cards and you have dice, but you can always influence them. So, you don't get to this position where you you get given a card and that's it, you're stuck with it. You've, you've got the ability to do something about that. You don't roll the dice and we just get what you get. You can manipulate that in certain ways and influence the outcome. So I can explain these, these in more detail, but it's the concept as a whole that I really enjoy because it means that all the way through, I could have done many, many different things and I've got all these different choices and all these different options. So I'm not at any point just being messed about with by bad luck. I can always do something to to, to mitigate that. So when I lose, it's entirely my own fault. Because, <laughs> you know, I've done stuff. Oh, it's the other guy who's been particularly clever or whatever. But it's I'm not kind of just along for the ride at any point.
0: Now, are you referring to the... I, I know there was a mechanic with the die rolling. So you're, you're rolling a, a custom six-sided die, essentially, and there's exploding yeah. with the dice, where if it gets to a high, like if it's to the five, which is the highest number, then you re-roll and add it on, but it lets you sort of, you could discard your dice that were misses to increase yeah. the numbers that you yeah. rolled on your dice to try to make
1: a hit. That's, that's it. If I explain it from, so if I try and explain it, it's a little more di- more difficult when you haven't got anything in front of you to look at, but you've got the dice are one, two, three, four, five, blank. So they're six-sided dice, one, two, three, four, five, blank. And the blank is in the basic way of explaining it, the blank is a miss. Occasionally it is actually used for special abilities, but basically the blank is a miss. And the object is to roll you get a number of dice for your attack skill, which could be anything from three to 10, and you are trying to roll equal to the defense, or better than the defense, equal to or better than the defense, of the thing you're trying to hit. So let's say you've got a defense of three. You roll dice, and you get three or more, and a three or more is a hit. If you've got a defense of seven, then each dice you roll, you read each dice individually. Seven's really hard to roll on six-sided dice with no sixes. So what you can do is if you get a five, you can roll that again and add it to five. So that particular dice, I say roll the dice, I get a five, I can re-roll that, and I get a three. That means I've got an eight on that dice, because five plus three is eight. If I get a blank on my second roll, that busts it. So that one's gone. That one's wasted. So that's one thing. That's straightforward. But as I said before, you can always, all the way through, you can mess with the randomness you get. So when you roll, when you roll the dice, if you get a five, it rolls up. If you get a blank, it's discarded. If you get one, two, three or four, what you can do with those is you discard anyone to add one pip to another one. So if I discard a two, I can add one pip to the four to make that another five. And because it's a five, it will now roll again. Now, whether I've got a one, two, or three or four, it doesn't matter for discarding. Everything adds one. But if you've got a one, two, three, or four and you add to it, its value is whatever it's on its face. So if I have a three, let's say I rolled one, three, three, I could take the 1 and add it to one of the 3s to make a 4, then I could add the other 3 to make it a 5. So I would have one dice left instead of 3, but it would be worth a 5 instead of one, three, three. And then that 5 rolls again and adds to 5. So the idea is basically you can use them in a number of different ways, and the effect is to give you the ability to usually the broad result is that you can pick to have a small number of guaranteed hits or a larger number of possible hits and then you roll dice with the possible hits and you may get successes and you may get negative so but you know you you might get a situation where you go i can get one guaranteed hit or i can roll three dice and i have a 50 50 chance on each dice of getting a hit so i might get three hits i might get none but it depends on the situation on the overall game you think well If I if I get two hits, then I've killed his god and I win the game. So I don't want to take the guaranteed one hit. I really want to go for at least two, so I can engineer them. So I can I can get two really good chances, or I can get three less good chances. So it it allows you to mess with the odds and to to give yourself different choices. Once after you roll the dice, which is as I said, it's it's this way of playing with the, the the sort of the hand that you've been given by fate. Is you've rolled the dice and you've got something. But you can now go in and you can mess with it. And I, I, I like that that ability to sort of just fiddle about with, with uh, the odds and to say, in this situation in the game, I'm happy just to take a, a you know a straightforward, fixed hit. I get I can guarantee this. I um that's it. i only need one. Or I can go, Oh oh well I'm feeling lucky, I'm gonna take three random chances. And that's the that's the you know, that's the, the dice mechanic. As I said, occasionally there is a there's one or two abilities that certain units have where they use the blanks to do other things with, and so on. You can imagine there's various different ways. It's, it's, it, there are wrinkles in it here and there, but that's the core mechanic. And I think that's pretty much all I have to say about dice because it's very simple. It's one of those things where if you show it to somebody, then once you've shown it to them once, they go like this, and you go yes and then they're fine you just leave them to it and and you come back for I mean I did, did some went to Essen Spiel and we were demoing for 4 days so I've played this with a lot of people and I've shown a lot of people how to do this and it really is something that it's one of those things where it's much harder to explain it on paper in a rule than it is to just show someone and then it just clicks when you when they see it and they go oh well that's good. that's clever oh okay, I can see now but it's uh, as there's interesting. Feature rules in general is some are easy to explain, some are difficult to explain, and it's not really always got much to do with whether the rule is easy or not to actually play. But this one, this one's very easy to use, and it's lo- this lovely wrinkle in about pick your own fate in a way. And the cards have a similar kind of ability to uh, to tinker around with what you've been given. But I'll have to take a step back and talk about the army lists and the army building to uh, to give you the basis for the car- where the cards work. <laughs> so, when you play a game, if you play a scenario, you might well have a, a fixed force of given to you because you'll be playing a story where such and such a character, you know, Zeus is doing this and he's brought Hades with him, and he's doing that, and you know, Achilles is there. You'll have things that are, for the story, you need to have certain things. So it'll tell you, you take these models and i'll take these models and this is where we set up and that's what we're doing so that's fine for stories and works that's how it works for stories in a normal campaign mode if you and i were playing a game we would each start by choosing our army and this works by we take we we pick one of the gods there's four in the core box the kickstarter gods and titans work in broadly speaking the same way The, the core box will have four gods in pledge at the moment with all the stretch goals, it's a $99 pledge for the box. It's a very simple pledge. There's, there's one pledge level. It's for for people like me who just want a simple answer. I like the game. What do I do? Oh, you click that one button. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to think about 47 different flavors of flavors of, of uh, pledge. For that $99 you get, I think now we're just coming up to 100 miniatures, and the, the retail box will have 37 in it. So we've added quite a lot. We're up to eight gods and one titan now, I think. Uh, Yeah,
0: and we are as we are recording this, it is the evening of Monday, November 14th. So presumably by the time whoever listens to this is listening, these numbers are going to be a bit different. But this is what they are as of Monday night.
1: Bigger than this, I would have thought. Yeah, that's right. So at the moment, we have more than doubled the contents of the core box that will be in retail. In the core box, there are four gods, five heroes, four monsters, and five units of troops, or maybe six units of troops. And we have doubled all of those numbers, and then some. So, the Kickstart pledge is actually quite good at the moment. You're getting an enormous amount of extra goodies for the hundred bucks. The Way the way the army selection works, we both start by picking a god. And that god will have a major effect on the way the army plays because the gods are all very different in their abilities and their special powers. So if you take Ares, god of war, he is very happy punching people and doesn't really do very much else, but he's extremely happy punching people. And he's good at it. He does that. Athena is actually a goddess of war as well, but she's the goddess of subtle tactics and cunning and strategy and ploys rather than just punching people. So they both deal with different aspects of war, but but they play very differently. So you pick your god, and then you put out everything else you've got, all the other units you have, and you you do a draft. You take turns picking from the set of things you've got, and every unit is unique. There's no doubles. So there's only one Odysseus. There's only one Hydra. There's only one... Hector, there's only one you know, whatever, there, there's only one of each thing and that means that you've got to think when you're drafting you know, you, you take turns taking stuff from the draft and each thing costs a, a certain number of points, one, two, three, or 4 recruitment points and in a two player game you have 12 so that's very simple, you just say well I'm, I'm adding very simple numbers, do I want this 3 point Minotaur, do I do want this 4 point Hydro or do I want this 4 point Heracles, what do I want? But the synergies between different units become quite important. So if you've taken something I know works particularly well with something that's still left in the draft, well, maybe I want to take that so you can't have it. Or maybe I want to take something else because it synergizes well with something I've already taken. Or maybe I just want to take something because I haven't yet got a really good beat stick to go and batter things with, so I, I really want something that does that. So, and you can see you know, there's lots and lots of different permutations for why you might pick a model or another model so that makes the drafting phase at the beginning of the game a, a skirmish mode game a kind of five minute mini game in a way and it's in itself and that sets you up for the whole of the the game you, you can really set up a plan in the way you select stuff but of course you rarely get everything you want because the other guy will Either take something deliberately that you want or take something that he wants that, incidentally, is also what you wanted. And so, you know, what order do you pick things in and, and so on? There's lots of interesting little little mind games going on there. The other thing about picking units is that when you take the unit, when you select a, a unit in from the draft, you get the stat cards that go with them, the dashboards or the bits of information that explain what they do in the game that tell you the special rules, that tell you their stats, keep track of their stats, because the stats of big things like monsters and gods change during the game. As they get wounded, their stats go down and degrade. So there's there's a dashboard dashboards with a little slider that tracks those quite neatly. As well as taking the stats, as well as taking the model, you take the cards that belong with that model. And there are three kinds of cards, but for this purpose, there's two that matter for this particular purpose. There are activation cards, because you can only activate a model when you have the card that belongs with that model. And there are Art of War cards, and these are... So the art activation cards belong to a particular model. Each model typically has four, although some have three and some have five. Typically, it will have four, and they all, they've got the artwork on the model. They belong to that model. So if I get Achilles cards... I can't do anything else with them but activate Achilles, that's the only thing I can do with them. The Art of War cards are common to everybody and they're like special cards, they're special effects, they allow you to do special things. And there's a number of there's five or six different things you can do with the Art of War cards, and they're a resource that you never have enough of. Basically they're they're the ability to be clever and cunning and do smart things. So Athena comes with three, and Ares comes with none. And that kind of tells you the different way they work. They're both gods of war. But Ares is not the god of thinky stuff. <laughs> he's he's the god of punchy stuff. Whereas Athena has got three three Art of War cards. That's very much more the ability to mess with stuff and, and, and do clever things, as I'll explain in a moment. So anyway, you take the cards for your piece. The cards for all of the different things you've selected in the draft collectively become your deck. So each time you play, you're likely to have a different balance of numbers of activation cards and numbers of Art of War cards in your deck. And if you've taken lots of cheap units, you'll have a bigger deck than if you've taken a small number of expensive units, because you'll just have more cards. And the way that is related to the size of deck the other person's playing is also a factor you might want to consider. So... When you're drafting, to go back to drafting for a second, you're not just thinking, do I want this model because it performs a particular function, it's punchy, it's fast, it's it's got the missile weapons, whatever it might be. But that's one reason you might take it. You might take it because you want to deny the other person a combo, you might want to take it because it makes a combo in your units, you might want to take it because it's a certain points value that fits with other things you need, you might want to take it because you like the model, you like the idea, you like the minor tool because he's cool, you like Heracles, because he's big and strong. Or you might want it because he's got lots of Art, art of War cards. Or because he's got five activation cards, 12 from three. There's lots and lots of different things, and they all kind of interrelate with each other. So you, you get your deck, however you've built your army, however you've chosen your army. You get your deck of cards, shuffle them all together, take out three, and then you get three extra Art of War cards. So your beginning hand always has at least three Art of War cards in it. And that's important because the Art of War cards are the way you can mess with the the card deck. So as I said before, at the very beginning, you are always able to mitigate against fate and bad luck. So with the dice rolls, you get to spend one to add one to another one. You get to re-roll things. With the cards, you can spend Art of War cards. So in a basic turn, I draw a card, add it to my hand, and then I can do one, I can play one activation for free. So I can play one of my activation cards from my hand, and I will activate that unit to move and fight and pick up on Phalos and do other things. The usual kind of moving around the board. That bit isn't something you will be surprised by. I have in my hand a certain number of activation cards and Art of War cards. Now, you're only able to activate units that you have an activation card for. So... If you look at the table and you think, well, on the, the, the sort of strategic position on the table, I want to move Zeus, and you go, well, I haven't got a Zeus card. That's not uh, that's not right. I, I know there's Zeus cards left because each card tells you how many cards are on the deck, and you can look through your discard. So you always know whether there are any left. But you might not have one in your hand when you feel that the time is right to do whatever it is you need to do with Zeus or Cerberus or whatever it is. So, if you have an Art of War card, you can spend an Art of War card to take the top two cards of your deck. So you've got more cards in your hand, and you might get it that way. You might get the card you want that way. Alternatively, you could spend the Night of War card to go through your deck and take any one card, but you get to pick which one it is. So two at random, or one specific one that you choose. Those two effects, those two abilities, can allow you to basically have any card in your hand that's available in your deck, or a larger hand at any one moment. You can always just pick to do that. So there's no point. There's no point at which you are saying, "Well, I, I needed an Ajax card or I needed an Achilles card, but I couldn't do that. I didn't have one. I, I was I was stuck." Unless you've already used all of them, this deck you've used a whole lot, or you've spent your Art of War cards on something else. Because as I said, it's a resource you've got to manage it. If you spend them in one thing, you can't spend them in another. Because Art of War cards not only do those two things, they also can buy you a second activation. So I said you get your first activation for free. If you want a second one, that's all you can have. You can only have two a turn. You have to pay an Art of War card to buy the ability to do your second activation. And then you spend your activation card for the second one. So let's say I a turn of mine could go like this. I draw a card. It's not the one I want. I want a Zeus card to do something on the table because I think that's important. I don't have one, but I've got an Art of War card, so I spend my Art of War card to go through my deck, get a Zeus card. So I haven't had an activation card because playing an Art of War card isn't an activation. So I now got a Zeus card, so I play that as my first activation, then I do whatever I want to with Zeus. After I've done whatever I want to with Zeus, I think actually I didn't quite have as much effect as I wanted. I like could have got a Cerberus card in my hand, he's in my army as well. I want to now activate Cerberus and finish off the thing I was I was battering with Zeus. So I play an Art of War card to buy me a second activation. Then I play my Cerberus activation card to act- actually activate the big dog. And then I've played four cards to move two things, but it may be an important part of the junction in the game. And that may be my kind of killing move. That may be my kind of kill stroke. You can also spend Art of War cards to power certain power, certain abilities, certain powers that that uh, gods or heroes or monsters have. Most heroes and monsters and gods have two special powers each that are generally unique, and some of them require Art of War cards to power them up. So the most dangerous ranged attack in the game is Zeus throwing thunderbolts, and this costs you two Art of War cards because it hurts lots again two out of War cards is a lot but you pick and choose when you use it obviously you can't use, you don't want to use it every turn you can't afford to use it every turn so you make sure it counts when you do two is the most i think any single ability costs so it tells you that's a, that's a, a powerful ability many abilities many powers don't cost anything they're free but when you choose to use them whether they're things you, that are always on, so that some things might have an effect that they always give a bonus to other units that are nearby. Other ones might always be able to fly. I mean, Flying is a thing that's always always available to a unit. So there's lots of variation. But the core ideas where you can choose your army, you can respond to other people picking things as you go along, so it's a kind of interactive and active army selection. Then you have your you play the game with a deck of cards that you can change and you get random ones from it, but you always influence the way in which you continue to go through that deck to play the ones you want when you want, most of the time. And then when you use dice to determine what the attacks do, again, you get to choose, you get to influence how that works. Do you take the guaranteed easy smaller number of hits, the big random hits? and it goes together to make a game where you can really feel like you can get into the nitty gritty and you can get what you want to have happen happen so anyway that uh, I think covers the broad strokes Uh, uh, are there any questions from the class?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'll say I I think that that was a pretty thorough spiel for a guy who says he doesn't have a spiel Jake (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, maybe I, maybe, maybe I do. I don't know this. Uh, <laughs> as I, did, I did spend several, uh, four days talking to people about this at uh, Essence. So I think I've, I've said this a few times. <laughs> I hope I didn't bore you with it. I'm sorry. I I, <laughs> I hope I didn't bore you. I hope it was interesting.
0: I just wish the, uh, it, it it's nice, like, for, I have the benefit here. I guess if somebody was listening could go back and do this, like, I can kind of sit here and look at the things on the screen while you're talking about them.
1: Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a bit for some of that, but you don't want to be saying that because you're running a podcast. <laughs> I yeah. You don't want to be pimping out the visuals as a as a good thing when uh, you need to do a video show. That's what you need to do, Chris. You need to invest in a camera. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's actually a bit of a of a running thing. We're a bit, uh, or I'm a bit self deprecating here, so I'll, I'll note that. Like, I hear there's this big video thing. Maybe we should do that sometime. Nah. I hear there's this entire massive internet site where you can just, like, throw up video with no (laughs) hosting cost whatsoever to you. Yeah. And, heck, you even get teeny tiny amounts of money if you can actually get people to watch your video. I mean, like, a penny. But still, that's something, right? It's the thought that counts. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if I could get a penny, even, for every time somebody downloaded the podcast, just, like, automatically, that'd be great. It doesn't work like that, it turns out.
1: No, it doesn't, does it? Nah. Did you have some? Qu- I think you had some questions. I'm sure you must have. I
0: did. I did. So let me let me start with the first one, which is I planned on asking this this question, uh, and then I and then I have a little follow up in the middle of the question because I got more information. So one of the two companies that correct me if I'm getting this wrong. One of the two companies that is working together on Mythic Battles is Monolith, and sure. Monolith did the Conan game there was a Kickstarter on that, but it it's just recently getting into people's hands. Sure. Uh, now one of the things that I, I saw perusing the forums on BGG was a number of people saying that, well, there is some real vagueness in these rules and, you know, some of the cards don't seem to like the English version of some of the cards don't seem to be complete. It sounds like people thought that like maybe things were written in French and then the translation was not as great as it should be and so i was going to ask you what if anything was being done about that this time but then i i also learned that that may be part of why you're working with mythic battles pantheon is exactly to address that that sort of issue
1: yeah sure i mean i have uh for for people who who don't know me uh I've, i've spent many years working as a as a writer and editor as well as game designer so i i was uh Magazine magazine editor for some years, and um, and worked in general kind of editing departments, and then so I've written quite a lot that's been published and, and uh, in various different guises, and spent a long time going through words and, and going through text and and making sense out of it. So the other thing being, of course, I'm I'm a native English speaker, and so so the team from Mythic Games and the team from Monolith are both French teams. So whilst they all speak an embarrassingly good English compared to my French, there is a world of difference between a good translation from the French and a coherent English rule set because the subtleties of language that express things in the jargon that rule sets are written in and the all the little details that, that that make the difference. When you look up a rule and you want it to be specific and apply definitively to a certain combination of events you've got happening at the time, you want it to be absolutely crystal clear. And this is not easy to do and if you're not a native speaker. So...
0: I'm pretty sure it's not easy to do even if you are a native speaker. I've read a lot of rule books.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it, it isn't easy to do at the best of times, but it's particularly difficult if it's not your native tongue. So what we're doing now is, um, because I I don't speak French to any useful level, the guys are translating Leo from uh, Mythic Games. He speaks very, very good English, and he, he works in, in English as well as French, He's tra- he translates it, and so he'll translate it into, or Benoit, the author, again, will, will translate it into English, and then I take it and make more sense out of that. I mean, like you, you, you were saying before the show, we were having a conversation about this, and, and there's a, you get phrases that, that are phrases that make sense in a sort of transliterative way, where... If you translate the French to English, the phrase, literally, the phrase makes sense, but actually no one who spoke English would ever say it like that, because the sentence structure is just really weird. And you can kind of work out what it means because all the words are there, it's just not in a way you would ever say it. Or they use words that obviously the dictionary translates as the right word. (laughs) But it's just a, something that is an obscure piece of thesaurus thumbing to actually expect any English user to actually really use. I'm trying to think of examples, and my brain's a bit fuzzy at the moment, so it's not helping. <laughs> but so what, what I what I can do, I mean, what my the advantage I have is is years practice of doing this kind of thing, and so I'm taking the French version that they've translated into English, and then we're going through that again and again and again, refining and refining and refining to try and get it to a point where it is as clean as we can get it. And so that the, the sort of residual French phraseology is removed and replaced by English gamerese, which is not quite English, but it's a very specialized, jargon-filled version of English. And... So so also, I I spent all this time playing games and looking at games and writing games and and reviewing games and writing about games and all this stuff. So I've I've also got quite good at picking holes in things. And it's easier when it's not yours. When you didn't write it, it's much easier to pick a hole in something because when you wrote something yourself, you know what you meant. And this is true whether it's it's prose or or poetry or, or games. When you write something yourself, you know what you meant at the time, so it's quite easy to read it with all of the gaps filled in in your head because you know what you meant. And when you didn't write it, you see, you can see the gaps much more easily and therefore ask the questions that need asking and paper over whatever cracks there might be so it's a it's a nice finish. So that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm tidying up the original translation. And working with other people, I'm not doing it on my own. Again, it, because I've got the author to ask, I can say, Benoit, I, I don't think you mean this, because it's a really weird rule if you mean it exactly as it's written, but this is what it says in English. And he'll say, yes, I really do mean that, or no, I don't, and this is what I do mean. And you you can kind of have that conversation back and forth. I so go, oh, right, okay, if you mean that, then we need to change it to say such and such. and. um obviously when I'm doing it, the advantage I've got is I can ask those questions and I've got to ask those questions while I have the opportunity because when it's printed, you won't have that chance. So I've got to preempt as many questions as I can that are being awkward little details and peculiar combinations of circumstances that may happen to try and weedle out all of the phraseology wrinkles and so what we're going to do, the idea is we're working on a version at the moment, and during the Kickstarter, we will try and up, we will upload that so that everybody else can also get to jump in and, and point out any, any loopholes and wrinkles that they find. And then that means we can make it better. And, and what we want to do is, after the Kickstarter finishes, we'll carry on putting up iterations of the beta rules until we run out of time and have to send them off to print. But we'll just keep doing that because the more cycles we go through, the cleaner the rules get. And so, yes, Conan Conan used a completely different system. I didn't have anything to do with the way Conan was done. But the French guys, I think, were, well, I know they were unhappy with it because I think they didn't realize that it had this vagueness to it. They didn't realize that, that it had a problem. They thought it was fine. But because they're not native English speakers, they couldn't see the detail of the subtlety of the things that were conf- going to then confuse the English readers, if you see what I mean. So we had, we had some conversations because I, I'm, what I'm doing on the Kickstarter at the moment is I'm writing all the updates and well, apart from I've had some stuff with my, my wife's gone into hospital. So I've had to miss one or two recently, but I've been writing the updates and then reading all the comments and dealing with the people in the comments and trying to answer questions and stuff. And one of the things we we're talking about, people keep saying, Oh, we would like to have a Spanish translation or a, a German translation or Italian or whatever. Uh, the game at the moment is offered in English or French. You can uh, pick which language you want it in. We didn't plan for other uh, other languages at the in advance in part because we don't have any native speakers for those in the team. And not having a native speaker in the team makes it rather more, more difficult to control and refine and know what you, exactly what you're getting. But the the conversations I think I, I've had with lots of people I think it's, it's illuminating because, on the one hand, they're very passionate about this, and I think that's that's one of the really nice things about dealing with the comments is that people are passionate, even if they don't like something, even if they object, even if they're upset about something. They're upset because they're passionate, and it's nice to see the passion for the game. I mean, they're, they're all they want the game to be perfect in whatever light they see as perfect, whatever definition they have of that. But it's the the fact that people want the translations. And they'll say, oh, such and such a game did it for 10 bucks and so on, or they did it very easily. And you go, well, the problem always is, their circumstances isn't the same as ours. We didn't plan this to be the case. We didn't plan to do a Spanish and a German translation during the Kickstarter. And so now, from this standing start, the chances of us being able to do it is not particularly good because if we start doing all of that, it's a lot of work. We're not terribly confident we can get a really good result in the short space of time. We don't want to do a bad result. We don't want to give people something where they've got this kind of fuzzy vagueness because that's obviously just frustrating when you're trying to play. So whilst we would like to do it, mean, we really like to do the translations to Spanish and German and so on. They're the two ones that people tend to ask most. We would love to do that, but at the same time we don't want to do a poor job and we don't want to deliver it to people late because Kickstarter's got a really bad rep for being late. Conan was late among other things and one of the things we learned a lot of lessons from Conan talking to the Monolith guys learning all of that and so one of the things we did with uh, Mythic Battles is to make sure that when we started we were very 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 well prepared and so when we say we're going to do deliver in December 2017 we are pretty confident we can do that because of the um, huge amount of preparation we've done in advance and we know what happened with Conan. We know where Conan was. We know where the wrinkles were with that. And we know where, you know, where, which bear pits, bear traps that fell down. And so they just, you know, we just said to the Conan, uh, Conan the Monolith theme, and said, "Well, what worked? Uh, you know, what didn't work?" And you go, "Well, what didn't work? This didn't work. Don't do that. It's terrible. And like, oh, we won't do that then. So we've avoided that problem." And they said, "Well, what would have worked?" And we go, "Well, this worked. This, this was really good. You should do this." So we go, "Okay, we'll do that." So we get to learn from their mistakes. And it's almost like having kind of having twenty twenty hindsight in advance because we get to see all the things that we we don't want to do and all the things we do want to do, and we get to pick them without having to have to fall down the holes ourselves. But also, you get the relationships built up because we're dealing with the same people who a lot of the same people in the uh, production process behind the scenes. So, when you deal with someone the first time, when you you ask them to make something for you. You don't know whether when they say it's six weeks they mean six weeks or whether they mean four or ten. You don't really know quite how you're going. You know whether you're going to get exactly what you ask for. And there's always this kind of lack of certainty. But once you've done it with someone once, you've built up. You've been through the whole painful process of learning how they work, and they've learned how you work. And you now know when they say six weeks they mean six, or when they say ten weeks they mean twelve, whatever it might be. Or when they say this is going to be like this, you know what they mean. And that makes the process far simpler and much easier to plan as well. You can, you can be much more realistic in what you're planning for. If you know that when the shipper says it's going to take six weeks to do this, you know you want to add three weeks for customs. So it's not going to be six weeks. It's going to be at least nine. And then you start building in some, some padding as well, just to make sure that when things do go wrong, because things always go wrong at some point, you've got a little bit of time to soak that up. So yes, I think this, there's been a lot of things learned from the way Conan worked. Translation of the English rules is one of them. Knowing that saying, yes, we'll do a Spanish one. It'll be dead easy is really not a thing we can do because we have to think long and hard. We have to talk to a lot of people. Uh, we're still talking to people, still trying to work out ways in doing that. But as I said, it's something that we learned the hard way isn't something you can just flip a switch and it happens. to to a degree that you need it to happen. We can get the game rules and we can dump them into Google Translate and we can have a version in Spanish in 10 minutes. But whether you can play off it is a very good question.
0: (laughs) I have to say, I, I should probably follow up with something specifically about the game, but I think probably the scariest thing I heard in here is that part of your job is reading all of the comments. Yeah, yeah which total fifteen thousand nine hundred thirty six as of this particular moment i do they give you combat pay or something
1: mm, not yet
0: <laughs> i guess there is something to what you said though right there as as they uh as they say the opposite of love is not hate the opposite of love is not caring mm. so mm. right be better to have people lots of people making comments that are occasionally rude on your on your on your Kickstarter campaign, then no one posting at all.
1: It's interesting. I don't. Yeah, I don't think they're being rude. I just think they're disagreeing. They have a different version of what a good model is or what a favourite piece of art is. And as it, as I was saying before, it's, there's everybody has their own view of of what is a good piece of art, what is a good model, and sometimes you get a consensus that this model is better than that model. But at the same time, you you still get what what is interesting is. Every single model that we uh, we do, and obviously there's more people joining the campaign, there's more people talking in the comments, so there's more people with opinions to express. And almost every single model that I can think of, I I know oh, every single I'll scratch that. Every single model that we put out, somebody will really like it, it'll be their favorite. Some uh, and this is from the comments, someone will go, this is just gorgeous, I love this, this is you know, this is what tipped me over into pledging. I saw this miniature and I thought, oh, well, that's just brilliant, I've got to have that. And someone else will say, this is awful. It's terrible. I don't know how you can, you can even bear to put this on screen. This is just abysmal and everything in between. And some models have more of one end and more of the, or more of the other, but there are, there are some people at each end for every model. And they're just being passionate. They're just expressing their opinion, which is, which is, as you say, if, if no, if I was sitting there, And I every you know going back to the comments once an hour, and there was nobody saying anything, (laughs) then then it would be just awful because you would think nobody cared. And the fact that you you know I'm I'm on the comments all day. I mean I I have to write the updates, sort of I write a sentence of the updates. I check. I, I go and add six comments. I write some more update. Write through the comments. I'm kind of back and forward all day which makes writing updates kind of very long-winded because you don't get a chance to sort of sit and do that for an hour unless you want 150 comments to read when you get back. And then, of course, that isn't so good because the gap between them writing and me replying gets to be really big. I mean, obviously, I can't always be, be there, and I can't always keep up. And sometimes it takes me into these big chunks where I'm, I'm writing a big update or something, and I go back and forth. It doesn't happen quite as quickly as it should do. but I read all of them in the end, and I reply to as many as I can. And it's, you know, it's interesting. You get a sort of feel of the pulse of the whole, the whole community when you're doing that. It's, it's quite interesting. And it's very uplifting as well, in a way, because, like I said, there's all these people, hundreds and hundreds of people who are just really enthused by the whole project. And it's kind of what keeps me going, doing this, because it is very tiring. Anyone tells you that Kickstarter is a money tree, you just go and kick and money falls off. It's sadly deluded. It's very hard work, and I mean, I'm not the only person doing ridiculous numbers of hours on this. The whole team is absolutely working all hours, all hours God sends.
0: Yeah, it seems like Leo keeps taking heavy advantage of that new Kickstarter Live thing.
1: Yeah, it's fun. I, everybody likes it as well. It's really nice. I mean, it, uh, as I, I decided it was called Leo Live today, or if it wasn't, it should be, and we'll have to get a logo done.
0: No, then I experienced the cataclysm for yourself, Leo Live
1: yeah 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 the leo live yeah I just came up with that this afternoon it's like I think that's just a nice nice catchy jingle leo live <laughs> it also means I don't have to do any
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and and we don't have time to go into into it in particular, but I saw experience the cataclysm was also the name of the update today where you guys added a role playing game in as well I mean it's an optional buy not not included with the pledge but yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it was one of those things where, where we talked to, uh, Black Book Editions before, which I won't try to pronounce with a French accent, but they're the ones who are doing that. They do lots of uh, roleplay projects and they're, they're quite well regarded as I understand. I'm not much of a roleplayer myself these days, especially not in French. And, um, they've got uh, a guy who is a specialist in mythology and who also writes roleplay stuff to work with them to, to, to be the author for this. And he's been working with Benoit on the background to make sure he's up to speed to understand exactly what, uh, how our, how our background differs from traditional mythology. So people kept talking in the, uh, uh, I've been writing all these updates with bits of background in Benoit's written all the background for the, the core rules and we were putting up lots of background and artwork and stuff. And people kept saying, Oh, we really love the background. We need more background. We need to put all this background in the rule book so that when the kickstart finishes, all this stuff doesn't get lost and, and so on. And, Black Books was going to do a version of this just next year anyway. They, we, we'd already, uh, they'd already announced that they were going to do a, a Mythic Battles RPG next year. And we had a talk with them. We thought, well, why don't, why don't we just put this in the, in the Kickstarter? Because obviously this, it's full of more background detail. It's full of more detail because that's what you want when you're role playing. You want the, the detail that makes the world come alive in a much more kind of intimate, small scale sense than, than is appropriate in a board game. And it's the same background. It's the same world. It's just kind of clicked two notches closer on the telescope. And the fact they've got the, this particular guy doing it is, is really nice because he just knows the world of Greek mythology just really, really well. And so that gives people also, I mean, obviously not everybody's role player, but if people want just reading the background of what what is what is Athena up to now, what has she done since the Cataclysm, what is her plan, they can read that in their role play game, right? goes into that level of detail as well as having a cool game in it and and I you know I've been reading the, the overview of how the rules work and I thought it sounds quite quite clever but yes adding adding that to just another another way of exploring the world of mythic battles
0: we're probably approaching the end of our time frame here but I did want to ask the one I guess actually I've got two strangely specific things so one, The Hell Judges, are those heroes? They're an optional buy. I wasn't sure if they were heroes or gods
1: or what. One of them is a monster, and two of them are heroes. Okay. The Hell Judges are... Hell is perhaps not. The Underworld Judges is really probably a better name, because Hell is not really Greek in terminology. Well,
0: I'm I'm
1: just reading what is
0: on your Kickstarter page.
1: I know, (laughs) I know. This is a discussion we've had about the use of the word Hell, so I think we'll probably tweak that after the kickstart finishes, but the principle is the same. It, they are m- mighty kings who were fabled during their life as lawgivers, who have died, and then while they have been in hell, they have been given the job of judging souls. So that's the mythology, that's where they come from. And they Radamanthus, Aeacus, and Minos are these three hell judges. And they're all very different. They all have a different view of what's legal and fair. So, one of them is well, they had all well, yeah, you can imagine the different kind of hang them high judges at one end and uh, needs a bit of community support in the other end. And they are each separate things. So one of the, two of them are heroes. One of them is a monster, and they would each be added to your pool to recruit. That's one of the nice things about the work. One of the things, interestingly, the way they're kickstart works with stretch goals you add little bits you add a a stretch goal and then you go on you add another stretch goal and in games where you have let's if you have a fantasy game where you have an elf army and a dwarf army each stretch goal is it's a bit for one army so anyone who is not collecting that army is a bit disappointed doesn't get something they can use with the way that the mythic battles pantheon is constructed with a draft system for our forces where anybody can use anything there's no fixed forces athena doesn't have particular things that belong to her anybody can use anything so every time we add a stretch goal with one more miniature in or we add a uh, an add-on like the hell judges box set anybody can use them they can go in any army so they just join the draft and then the draft gets bigger and all the possible synergies and interesting combinations get more numerous so It's all just cool for, it works perfectly as a, as a, as a game to go on Kickstarter because of the way the draft works. But to go back to the Hell Judges, are they monsters? They are, they are monstrous. The Minos, who is the one who's classified as a monster, is monstrous in that he is the least human appearing of them and has sort of devolved most distant from the original person you might have been.
0: Is he the one whose belly looks like it's a big furnace?
1: Yes. He's the one who looks like his head's on fire and his belly is hollowed out and has a furnace and is as a furnace full of skulls. Yes. He's not terribly nice looking in terms of, um, not someone you'd invite for tea with your mother, but he's, he's my favorite model of the three. I think he's a splendid model. Not everybody likes him because he's so different, but again, this is almost a matter of taste. I, I find him quite intriguing because he's quite different, but. In the game, each of them is a diff- is an independent model that goes around and does its own thing, whether they are a hero or a monster. It's 15 bucks for that particular add-on. It adds that, and that's what I think is, again, it comes back to what we're talking about to do with value. I can't remember whether we recorded our conversation about value or not, but I was saying <laughs> before.
0: <laughs> that was uh, at the beginning of the recording, yes.
1: So the, the thing about value, and, and I think in that it's a good example where it's 15 bucks for three models together with the... Cards and dashboards and stuff that they need to play. But what you're adding, you think, you know, well, okay, how much game time fun can I have with those three guys? And I think for me as a gamer, if I looked at that, I go, wow, that these, each of them does something peculiar that isn't in the core set. Each of them has a new special powers that does something that you cannot do otherwise. So the fact that there's three of them and they're all doing something weird, I think, wow, that, that's several games worth of interesting things I'm going to get out of these guys. So 15 bucks. Why else can I do 15 bucks? There's going to be several evenings worth of entertainment. So you go, well, actually, that looks like really good value. If I like the game, then that looks like a, an easy way to add a fair amount more kind of play and replay into it. So, again, it's, as I said, not everybody thinks the same thing. I'm mean, that's, that's fine. I'm just thinking that's the way I that's the way my brain works with uh, with value, and I'm sure you actually had a question there, and I've got no idea what it was.
0: So I was just curious what kind of figure they they slotted into the the army as. Yeah, I, I don't really want to get off into the the sideline. One could have a whole episode about the economics of Kickstarter pledgings and exclusives and uh, things. Sure, I did have a second one, which uh, is probably excessively nerdy, but Go for it. so far there's only been one official Titan announced and that's Atlas so the game related question is okay when, when are you gonna have more but because I would say like there were 12 primary Titans and uh, you know so that's that's a lot of stretch goals to unlock actually my nerdy follow-up on that is actually Atlas is not one of the original 12 Titans he's just another son of a of a Titan. Just like the Olympians were were sons of a different Titan, Cronus. But the Kickstarter actually has Prometheus as a I think he's a monster figure. He's either a hero or a monster. Mm. And he is Atlas's brother, so I guess how is it decided who's a Titan or not and when are more Titans going to be unlocked?
1: He's Atlas's brother in some of the versions. This is one of the one of the interesting things about about this whole project is that when he read I mean, Greek Greek mythology, a lot of it comes from 800 BC, 1000 BC, oral traditions handed down, written down four centuries after they were started, kind of, and then believed for a thousand years, and it changes all the way through, and the gods change what their function is, they change who their parents might have been they change who their children are they change their relationships they change their stories they borrow stories off each other they change aspects all the time it's there's no one version of pretty much anything <laughs> there's very very little where you if you look into it that there isn't some kind of different version somewhere even if it's read and there's also lots of regional stuff so so in different areas of Greece, the story is slightly different and some places will sort of adopt one of these heroes as being from there. And then they'll have different stories or additional stories that aren't generally talked about in other parts of Greece. So you get this very complicated thing where you, you have to pick. You can't, you know, you can't be the son of this and the son of that. You can't have, you know, it, well, Except you can in Greek, Greek mythology you can in certain circumstances. But again, I was I can't even remember which one it was. And I was doing one the other day, and there were two completely different origin myths. It was Orion, I think it was, and there were two utterly, completely, entirely different origin myths. And you've just got to pick one. You can't have both. So Benoit has chosen the bits that you know the versions he wants for the stories he wants to, to tell. And in the version that he has chosen of Prometheus, Prometheus is the son of a giant and a god, not a titan. So he's not a titan in that respect. And also, and also, if you look at the history of Prometheus, he wasn't very big and tough compared to everybody else, because several of the titans beat up gods on a fairly regular basis, and Prometheus was the other end. He got duffed up by gods. So he was clearly the runt of the litter if he was ever a titan.
0: Uh, Well, yes. I mean, he's, he's mostly known for, uh, what, giving humans fire and then getting chained to a rock for the rest of the day.
1: Yes. Well, which which is, is, you know, a proper titan wouldn't, wouldn't get chained to a rock by Zeus. (laughs) It's just (laughs) not going to happen. The proper titan would, Zeus comes up to him with some chains and he goes, really? You want to eat them? (laughs) And, uh, yeah. So, so Benoit has gone with the, the version which, which, uh, which has Prometheus not as the brother of Atlas, but, as the son of a giantess and a god, I think it was that way around. But as I said, it's it, it's one of those things where you you can't have both. Both of them. the other thing is descriptions. So many of them have wildly varying descriptions, especially the monsters. And the Greeks have, seem to have this thing about fifty-headed things. So just <laughs> just in terms of models, you think, oh, just don't do it. No, just stop. Stop fifty heads and. Dog tails coming out of its legs, and uh, what? (laughs) All the way through, I'm thinking you never, you didn't have to make a model of this, you know. You could just sit there and write, you know, hundred heads, snakes coming out with ears, all this kind of, you know, nine hundred tails. You go, what nonsense! You can't make this.
0: Three seems like a good number of heads to stop at. Three, three,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I was saying to I was saying to Leo today, what we really should do is we should get get humans, dogs. You know, like giants, and we should just make one, two, three, fifty, and a hundred headed versions of everything. <laughs> and then you could pretty much cover, like, the vast bulk of, of Greek myth with, with, you know, one, two, there's big dogs, there's two headed dogs, and there's three headed dogs. <laughs> and even things like the, 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 um, the Hydra, even when you think you know that the Hydra has seven heads, the other story where it has five or nine or 50 or actually it only has one head and it also has a bunch of young with it that make it look like it's got more than one head because they're all in a big pile so there doesn't seem to be a single story which you can read and say that's the answer it's like this this is the version unless there's only one version they've ever found that's the only time you ever get one version Nearly everything. And certainly all the famous stuff has multiple different incarnations. So you have to pick and then you've got your own version of the Greek myth. Because you've had to make choices to actually tell a coherent story to everybody.
0: Oh, there you go. I, I asked a nerdy question and I got an even nerdier answer. Absolutely. That's great. But uh you still just go on. What's the next stretch goal where there's a, a second Titan added to something?
1: I I don't know to be honest, don't. because I, I, I no I don't know because the I'm just a humble wordsmith. <laughs> I am not privy to the secrets of the gods. I'm not even sure they know, to be honest, because because sometimes the gods are out cavorting, That's what gods do, you know. Yes, yeah, so I hear Zeus made a career of it. Well, he's 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 the leader of the pantheon, so he's got to he's got to show them how it's done.
0: <laughs>
1: and he does. I, what am I going to say? Yes, the titans. We are we are going to see more titans before the end of the Kickstarter. You can trust me on that. We are definitely going to see more titans. Exactly where they are and exactly which ones they are, I'm not going to tell you, because that would spoil the surprise. It's much more fun to come and look at it. Come yes. and look at it, see so what you can see.
0: You can come uh, out and check actually, every the, day for a new update. Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
1: I mean, do you know? Come and have a look at it and see the quality of the art, see the quality of the miniatures. One of the things that I think we it's it's difficult to explain to people, even when you show them the miniature. Is how big Atlas is. He's a Titan. We put him as a scratch goal, so if you pledge, he'd get him for free. And he is the size of your head. He is enormous. We put a picture up with a with a little thirty two mil Spartan next to him, and you look at it and you go, yeah, yeah. But of course, what the fact that he's three or four times the height means he's three or four times the depth. He's three or four times the width, which means he's I don't know what hundred times the volume. He's just absolutely enormous, and he's um. So, so yeah, the Titans are in the way that the one one of the things we haven't mentioned is the the models, the gods are twice the height of the humans, and that gives you this beautiful sort of visual aesthetic where the really big tall gods make the humans and the other mortals like the satyrs and the centaurs and, and so on look puny, which they should do, and then the Titans make the gods look small, which is I think just. You think, until you put Ty- uh, Atlas on the table, you think, these gods, these are really big. You go, plonk. Oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, they look like some of the monsters are really, are pretty big too. You mentioned yes. the Hydra, but I see They're the, the Dragon big, yeah. of Thieves looks very yeah. large, and the the Scylla model in the Poseidon
1: expansion. The- she occupies several different areas. She's huge. <laughs> yeah, The monsters are kind of proportionately... Bigger or smaller, depending. Uh, several of them. Several of the things in in uh, in Greek myth, like Medusa, for example, is basically a, a human woman with a tail, a snake tail, because she was a human woman until she was cursed by, by one of the gods. There's there's several. It's it's quite entertaining. You start reading the Greek myths, and there's loads of instances where somebody, a, a human or a nymph or or some kind of human-sized person. Gets really good at something and challenges the gods to a contest, and you think, oh, it's just going to end badly. <laughs> I, just, and it doesn't matter whether they win or lose, the god always gets peeved at the end of it and then curses them with snake tails or snakes for hair or whatever. You know, Humans never win these competitions.
0: No, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they were trying to deliver some sort of morality play. I think so, yes. yes I think, I'm, yeah, I'm, but, yeah. but
1: hubris is something that gets stamped on pretty hard with Greek myth but yes the miniatures for the monsters some of them are kind of humans with tails because that's what the myth says but when it comes to minotaurs they're bigger and then you get Cerberus the three-headed guardian of hell who's this big three-headed dog who is big he's he's very large and then you get the hydra who's bigger again to give you the scale to give you the impression this is a serious the Lernian hydra terrorized the region of Greece for years well, if it's the size of a small puppy, then it's not really going to work, is it? So it has to be big and imposing, and that's one of the the scale of the miniatures, the, the varying scales of the miniatures to give you this kind of impact. is great. I think it gives this – you start, sit back and you look at the miniatures all laid out, and you get this real sense of, of scale and grandiosity of the, the big things look really impressive. And because there are little things as well to give them scale, so yeah, I think it's a uh, yeah big monsters, little monsters, huge titans. What's not to love?
0: Okay, so I think that's the time we have for today. So we've been talking about mythic battles, pantheons. It ends on it as of now. It's sixteen days to go, oh, but I don't know when you're going to listen to this. So I'll say it. It ends that's on on December first. Yeah, sure. And I. I, I, you know, usually these updates say that it, the pledge is this much out of whatever. Well, right, like what? It's it's crushing the the goal, and you're looking to see how many stretch goals you're adding to your to your hundred dollar pledge. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: it's a it's a ninety nine dollar pledge, but we're on something like thirty thirty one stretch goals at the moment. So, the original box, the the vanilla box, is thirty seven miniatures, and we're now up to ninety eight. Or something like that, and and some of the minute. When I say miniatures, I mean one of the miniatures is is Atlas, who's something like 120 mil tall, is huge. So several of them are the gods who are 65 mil tall. So we're not talking when we say 100 miniatures. Two things that are different from some of these Kickstarter's you you see with big miniature counts. One of them is that I think that's 49 different sculpts so most of these models are unique, and rather than just saying, oh, we'll put 20 of this figure in to rack up the model count, no, there's, we've got an average of, yeah, I think there's about 98 models and 48, 49 different sculpts, and as I said, some of, the, some of them are huge.
0: Uh, yeah, because well, the only models that appear more than once are those very basic troops. And, That's right, yes. And those Everything in- else is unique and six. Six, I think, is the most that there is of any troop, and most of them seem to be more like three or four.
1: Three or four is the most common. The most of anything is seven for the Spartoi, because they are the... they were inspired by... uh, it's sort of an homage to Ray Harryhausen from the the, uh, skeleton scene in the early uh, stop animation stuff. The Dragon of Thebes dies, and from his teeth spring warriors to fight Jason. And... In the film, these are skeletons, and so we did the skeletons. And in the film, there are seven of them, so we did seven. But normal troop units are threes and fours, occasionally fives. There's like one or two twos and one or two sixes, but, but mostly they're three, four, five. And they are the weakest because they are mortals who have blundered into a, a battle between gods and heroes. And so they die lots, but they have other abilities that make them quite quite interesting in other ways and quite quite useful in the game. But yes, they're the only things that get duplicated. Everything else, there's only one of. So we've put an awful lot of resources into getting a very large number of sculpts and big variety.
0: Okay, thanks for coming on the show, Jake.
1: Thank you for tolerating my rambling. <laughs> I'm sure this would be edited to a 20-minute section.
0: I, I, uh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. That, I honestly, it, here, here's the thing. It really, when it comes down to it, I would have to take some stretch where you were talking for 20 minutes, and then I, I would have to really go through and listen to that, and then I'd have to listen to it again, and then it would take me like so long to figure out which parts to cut and move around or something. It's really way too much work. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's easier just to have you talk for twenty minutes. I, I,
1: I, okay. I, I. Well, thank you very much anyway.
0: I make no apologies for my, uh, my, my need to not be up until three in the morning trying to edit episodes. So,
1: just <laughs> gone three now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, well, you, you see, you do. You that's part of that combat pay you should get along with reading all the comments.
1: Yeah, it's just uh, it's just gone through. As I look at my you can my monitor now, it's just turned three a.m. Yep, um, yeah. At least not here. At least not not
0: not three here. Yay! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. But you've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can find more podcast episodes there. You can also subscribe on iTunes, in the Google Play Store, on Stitcher, or other. Pod catching services. We're on the usual social media sites. We're at Strange Assembly on Twitter and Facebook.com/StrangeAssembly. I always like to hear from our listeners and readers, so you can email me. I'm Chris at StrangeAssembly.com. But until then, for Jake Thornton, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.